This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Welcome to the CMS Colloquium. We have an extra not large number of guests today because of the Media and Transition Conference, which starts tomorrow. And I've roped most of the people here, CMS folks, into moderating panels or otherwise being engaged. So I hope we'll see you throughout the weekend at various events. Um, it's my pleasure to, this afternoon to introduce my friend, Sharon Mazur, uh, currently at Canterbury University at, in Christchurch, New Zealand, which I noted in class today is the gateway to Antarctica. Uh, and uh, I, I get very cold reception when I go down there. No, 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 no. I, I, I. <laughs> Nothing like the chill in the room here. Uh, but Sharon has, I've known for 15, 16 years, and has does, for my money, some of the most interesting studies of popular performance. I mean, we often, performance studies often gets applied to high art, uh, traditional theater, and so forth. And Sharon takes the low road and uh, really explores everything from the fat lady at Coney Island through wrestling to tourist performances uh, among the Maori in uh, New Zealand. And today she's going to share some of her perspectives as a performance scholar talking to us as media scholars. I really want to thank Henry for inviting me to do this and for not sitting right in front of me so that I'm terrified. <laughs> He's doing his best to psych me out today. <laughs> And I think given the nature of this meeting, I want to also thank my friends John Bell and Trudy Cohen of Great Small Works, which is a toy theater company, for hosting me this week in their house and sharing their work with me as well. They've been really hospitable um, and patient with me as I write these papers today. Um, and Henry has also basically told you how I come to be here. I'm a performance scholar, a theater director, and a theater scholar who came to performance studies by taking the low road, by getting interested in wrestling. And the conversation with Henry started over wrestling around the first days of the internet. You know, basically, we started with the internet talking. And so we've always had a mediated conversation that has transcended everything else. Um, and as he points out, I, I have a very ambivalent, uh, that's a nice word for it, relationship to media. As a theater director, I hate it. Um, <laughs> that, that's the ambivalent part. Um, because, uh, you know, when somebody says, oh, let's tape your performance, let's videotape it, let's archive it, I say, well, that's not my performance. That's not the performance I directed or the performance that people experienced. Um, and at the same time, this is the other side of that coin, um, as my dissertation sponsor used to say, it's ambivalent. Uh, the ambivalent side is that as a performance scholar, uh, I go to see as much performance as possible, but for the most part when I'm locked in a room with my computer, what I'm looking at is a videotaped document of my performance. So that tension is in my work at every level of my professional experience and has been for many, many years. So when I gave this talk the title, What's Live Got to Do With It?, Aside from having, you know, this odd Tina Turner song running in my head, I, um, I threw the title at Henry really as a challenge to myself and to Henry because I wanted to ask again, well, you know, if, if everything is mediatized already, and there are many people who argue 
that performance is always already mediatized in this day and age, and audiences certainly respond from the perspective of media, uh, 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 media not savvy, media-conditioned uh, experience. So you can't actually ask people to come sit in a room and watch your performance as if there's no such thing as media. You know, that's always in the room with you. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the most prominent performance scholars I know, Philip Auslander, uh, points out that the only reason we can talk about live performance at all is because recorded performance came in at the beginning of the last century. So the notion of liveness itself is intimate, intimately, intrinsically tied to media and mediatization. So in the first instance, I wanted to defend live performance. I mean, this is my imagination down at the you know, south end of the South Pacific. I'm imagining months ago this talk that I'm going to give and sort of ranting in my own brain as I do. Um, so the first thing was to defend live performance in the context of Henry's work, which seeks to, from my perspective, seeks to insist that fans of mediatized performance create their own sense of liveness and community in their interaction with that media. Um, and so that one can't have my prejudices if one looks at Henry's work properly. And I accept that, but my prejudices hold. Um, and so I thought I might, you know, throw a tantrum at the encroachment of uh, machines into every interaction of my everyday life so that when I call for a pizza in New Zealand, not only am I getting a call center somewhere in the world, and I always ask them where they are, and they can be anywhere, um, but I get a machine now named Kate who says, I can understand what you say. And I say, no, you can't, and I throw a tantrum until I get a person. And then I find that the person at the call center talks like a machine, right? So I can't say, oh, I hate your damn machine. Get that machine away from me. Um, because that person isn't programmed <laughs> to talk to me like that, and in fact is being monitored, is being surveyed, cannot actually deviate from the script as far as that. So I'm stuck again back negotiating with mediatization even when I want my Friday night special dinner. Um, and so the argument that people are somehow not machines or machine-like, it's long ago uh, uh, dissolved. Uh, um, but I also think, uh, you, know, you know, if I stop throwing my tantrums, which I you know, still am doing, um, you know, I wanted to explore my own faith in live performance, that live performance is somehow more meaningful, more, um, more significant. It creates a sense of the social and a sense of commonality amongst people or a sense of difference amongst people that one can't get to otherwise. And I, so I wanted to sort of proclaim my faith instead of tantruming. I thought maybe I could do that. Um, and it's, you know, that live performance has an extraordinary extraordinary affective and effective power on its audiences and indeed on its performers. And this is a faith that I share with performance practitioners and scholars worldwide. This is not me just being idiosyncratic. This is a condition if you study theater, if you make theater, if you make performance. Um, and you know the, uh, the notion for myself that something significant happens between people at live performance in a way that it can't happen otherwise. So again, resistance to Henry's arguments, but also my own faith, because not just sort of taking for granted that I'm right and he's wrong would be probably the wise thing to do, at least to start. Um, for me, live performance is the site of intimacy and immediacy. This is happening here and now. I'm sitting in front of you 
here and now. And yes, there's this weird machine, you know, record, and I'm t tethered to a weird machine that is now recording me, and other people will hear me in the not so here and now. But my idea, my faith that when I look around and I see you, that this is actually where it's happening. It's really important to me. It's critical for me. Um, and I don't think we can generate this kind of experience any other way. I really don't think it's the same. Um, so while I think that mediatized performance, recorded performance, allows for scrutiny and examination and revision in a way that live performance does not, um, I, you know, I want to assert the value of that um, and the social engagement. So this is where I'm starting. Um, but at the same time, I had another agenda, which was to finally, finally, finally leave professional wrestling behind um, and to make the transition into studying Maori performance more directly than I've been able to in the past. That, of course, doesn't fully happen because one of the reasons I'm here is to talk about wrestling. So, in a sense, that tension, that ambivalence carries through in that way as well. Um, and I thought I'd start by comparing professional wrestling to Maori kapahaka. Kapahaka is traditional, Maori traditional performing arts as packaged into a set, set of performance practices that are uh, presented in competition in a biannual way. So professional wrestling, from my perspective, represents a quintessentially American social uh, perspective, and it's a quintessentially American performance practice even though there are versions of professional wrestling um, worldwide and they all are distinct from each other. It's American professional wrestling that I've studied and I think in the way that it represents Americanness, it's still very uh, fascinating. Um, and I wanted to switch then to a performance practice that is quintessentially New Zealand, that is identified with New Zealand's people and culture in an, in an, in an equivalently essentialized way. So this was the transition that I'm trying to make here today as well. Um, and it seems rather arbitrary to put them in the same room, but they're actually not so different as we start. Um, and I had the good fortune when I was starting to think about this paper to have the opportunity to see the WWE in Christchurch for the first time, as far as I know, ever in the road to WrestleMania 23. <laughs> Um, how can they have done 23 of them and still be counting? Um, on February 23rd, and Te Matatini, the national uh, uh, Kapahaka festival, um, the 24th and the 25th. So essentially, I went racing over to the uh, uh, Civic Center to watch wrestling on the Friday night, and bright and early the Saturday morning, got on a plane and immersed myself in Maori culture for the rest of the week. And um, so that was, the, it was actually, the comparison was rather immediate in the moment. Um, and of course, you know, oddly, funnily enough, when I went and saw these performances, um, it, uh, it really provoked me to rethink the assumptions that I've just presented to you. Um, and it's not so easy to do, to rethink your assumptions, I will say. We've invested so much energy to being in the room. And, and really committed your sort of heart and soul to being in the room with performance to start to pull back. So I'm not going to be nostalgic any longer for the liveness of the live event. I, I want to look and take the question, what does live have to do with it, as literally as I can with the rest of this talk. Um, 
And I want, especially in this case, because both performances were, um, you, were uh, significant for the way in which the platform with the live people on them, right, doing things with the audiences all around, were accompanied by video screens, jumbotrons, at the same time. So both performances turned out to be equivalent in, for the fact that the live event was happening at the same time that the TV broadcast was being manufactured, and indeed, in the case of Te Matatini, being broadcast simultaneously. So what I had was actually this incredible opportunity to talk about liveness and mediatization as they exist in the same room. So what does one have to do with the other is a very literal question for me. Um, and I think that, uh, that live experience then, where you're sitting in the audience, for a live experience in which you're actually seeing people on the stage at the same time that you're seeing the television program being developed is, is in itself a live event that is, that is uh, you know, you might call it hybrid or you might call it something else, but it's the live event. You can't just say, oh, I saw some people on the platform. You have to say, I saw some people on the platform and they were on the screen at the same time. What does that mean? How do I understand that now? So that's what I'd like to say. Um, so the comparison between professional wrestling and uh, Maori Kapahaka is a way of making sense of my you know, erratic performance research history, which Henry so kindly outlined. But it's also a way of opening up questions that you can't answer when you're just looking at one form or the other, I hope. So um, both professional wrestling and Kapahaka serve uh, are miles apart. You know, they're very different practices. But they're both models of traditional practice which exist in a contemporary frame. They've been developed over time and exist in a contemporary frame. Both have as their highlight male performance, performances of masculinity, professional wrestling, the fight, kapahaka, the haka. Do people know what the haka is? Have people seen the haka? Anyone? Okay, well, I'll show you a bit if we can get the thing to work the way we want it to. We'll show you a bit of haka. But haka is the, the sort of the uh, dance that is most identified with Maori culture because the All Blacks do it before they play a game of rugby to intimidate their audiences. And they say, they say kamate, kamate, kora, kora means I, I live, I live, I die, I die. <laughs> or I die, I die, I live, I live. I can't remember which way it goes. And in any case, that, so it's a very masculine, and it's their warrior uh, pose at that point. Both wrestling and kapahaka have origins that cross from ritual, especially the kind of ritual that is focused on encounters between villages or tribes, um, to a theatricalized entertainment, um, the carnival and the concert party, you know? So both these forms are actually based first in encounters between one group of people and another, and how that's negotiated and played out. And then they come to be theatricalized over time and take on new meanings. Um, that means for me, and I'm misusing the term, I'm sure, but both wrestling and kapahaka are convergence forms. They have a thread of influence that comes, extends from historically from ritual, but they also pull their designs from other kinds of performance practice into making that, and indeed um, both use media in interesting ways. Um, and these are more complicated than at first seem evident, I think. Both wrestling and kapahaka are framed as competitions. 
So, uh, you know, and there are suspect competitions or not, depending. Wrestling is, of course, a suspect competition. But um, Kapahaka is a genuine competition. It's just like the Olympics, like gymnastics at the Olympics or whatever. And that sense of competition is taken very seriously. So it's like sport. So it's a theatricalization of ritual that is treated as sport in the arena. And the winning of a, of a category, especially the overall category of Kapahaka, is actually uh, acquires, gives the iwi, the tribe, the group, that presents it an extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary amount of mana that is genuine and that they hold for two years until they defend again. Um, both performance practices work at the level of the symbolic and the allegorical um, as well uh, and as macrocosmics explanations of the way the world works. If you look at wrestling, they tell you this is the way the world works, the world, th and this is the only way the world works. Kapahaka is the same. This is the way the world works. That's what they insist. This is how it is. Um, both forms perform versions of localized or particularized identity. With wrestling, it may be you know I'm American versus you know I'm Arab or whatever, but they actually perform these identities against each other. Um, and wrestling in particular says it's also, you know, while it's American, it says it's what the world is watching. So they identify themselves as a particular thing that everybody is engaged with. In, a, in an equivalent way, Kapahaka, each team represents a tribe, a village, a, an arid region, although that may be made up of people from various tribes in various regions. They're identified, each group, with a particular area. So they say, we are the Tuhoi people, and this is how we do it. And then they'll say, we are Natipuro, this is how we do it. And so some of that is built into the performance as an assistance. And it adds up to, this is Maoridom, this is how all Maori are together, um, the meaning that's um, produced. And increasingly, with Kapahaka, that performance has become exportable. So it's not internationalized so much as it's genericized. This is the generic Maori, and within that, we have iwi, we have tribes, we have roku, we have smaller groups of hapu. Um, both these forms are initially performed for live audiences. The versions that I saw were performed for equivalently numbered audiences of about 5,000 each, both in arenas that are used for other purposes as well. So they're not in beautiful little theaters with lovely stuff. Um, and both are filmed for later broadcast, and, and expect you know, with the expectation that they'll be packaged so that the WWE doesn't, you know, put its wrestlers in front of people without a camera as well. The Kapahaka Festival this year was sponsored by Maori Television, and so everything that was produced there was instantly recorded and dominated by, in many ways, uh, by the fact of it's being recorded for Maori TV um, before it had been one of the other nationalized stations, but Maori TV got the contract this year. Um, and so what, what you feel when you're in the audience, when you're in the arena, is that what we're seeing is not what the audience is going to get, right? We're part of, when you're in the, in the room with, the, with it, you're actually part of the spectacle that's being produced for someone else far away, including yourself it could be, but you know, you'd be that little tiny pinhead up in the corner or whatever. Um, and in this case, both were happening live at the same time that their mediatized versions were being shown to us. 
um, and, and especially with the Kapahaka Maori TV, they were editing four, four live broadcasts as we went. And um, so the, the version that I have now is what they were broadcasting live at the time. But then they further edited that, and that's being replayed in, even now in, in New Zealand over the next month. So all of the 30 teams that have played have, have actually are getting their evening um, on TV, I think, for a month. Um, they're being broadcast one in, one in the evening. So that'll be interesting to see, and I'm getting that recorded for me, but we'll see. I'm assuming that everyone here has seen wrestling in some form, yes? Any, anybody want to confess to not having seen any wrestling ever? You wouldn't dare, would you? I mean, when I ask this of my students, actually, in Christchurch, I get the, res the, the opposite response. I go, oh, no. I don't know. So I don't have to explain wrestling to you, and I certainly don't have to explain, you know, uh, uh, my point of view about it, and if you want to know, talk to Sam. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the things that's interesting as someone who's written about wrestling and who had sort of tried to run away from it as far as New Zealand is, that, you know, when it found me in New Zealand, it was quite a different experience because I'd been... 10 years or more away, I think it was 10 years since I've written the book. And so, you know, and I'd, well, I'd adapted pieces of the book for subsequent publications, and Hop on Puck took forever to come out, so by the time I was editing that, it was, you know, I don't know, history in itself. I had really tried to leave it behind, so coming back to it, and coming back to it in the context of Christchurch was really interesting. And if we could just play um, a bit of it, just so you can see. I mean, it's a piece that I really like um, because it's Mr. Kennedy coming out and establishing, for those of us who don't know him, which included me, um, establishing sort of his, his place in the event. Yeah, Crusaders suck. Crusaders are the Christchurch rugby team. All Blacks are the national team. And you can figure out the next yourself. <laughs> this is was taken by my student for me. She was having <laughs> she was jeering. Well, that's enough. Really, how much of this can you watch? <laughs> huh? 
Oh, I forgot to mention that. Both performance practices involve men being nearly naked, or in the case of the two hoi, flipping their loincloths to show you that they're basically naked. Um, but never mind. I, <laughs> I'm not going to linger too much on wrestling because I think it's um, not necessary today. But one of the things, uh, some of the things that are really interesting are the way in which uh, Mr. Kennedy immediately tells us, those of us who haven't been following and who don't know, um, exactly what we're supposed to think about him. And what was interesting is halfway through when the match got really boring, the boys behind me who were very involved um, decided to start cheering Mr. Kennedy to see what ha would happen. And they almost got it over. They almost got it over and then things started to move as they do on the platform and they lost it. So. Um, but even so, the, that way of making something that is international, that is globalized, local, which is, I mean, it's a cheap shot or a series of cheap shots, but it's still really important. The way of making it about being some, in a place rather than somewhere in the air, really necessary in live performance in a way that if you're pulling it off the TV, you know it doesn't have to be there. It doesn't have to be about you. So the localization of performance is still essential to live performance. And the drawing heat with insults, it may be cheap, but it certainly was effective and great fun. Um, and I must congratulate my student, Sophie Lee, because she was being sort of challenged repeatedly by the usher. Evidently, it was okay to record on cell phones and to take flash photos, but she had an actual camera out there. And so she kept getting told to put it away. So every time she pulled it out, she was in danger of losing her camera, which I felt was very heroic of her on my behalf. Um, when it's a live event that is mediatized, like wrestling, one of the things is that if we lack a, a, a sort of an ongoing relationship with the televised events, then we're even more dependent on our colleagues in the audience to tell us what's going on than we are generally. And I think that's a really interesting part of a process when a globalized media product comes, comes home and or comes to a place and is presented live. Um, so we were, uh, the group of us, uh, uh, academics. I brought my thesis students and my colleagues and my daughter who hated it um, to, the, to the match and we were largely dependent on everybody around us to tell us who to cheer, who to jeer and sort of you know keep us on point. Um, and even so when we're in the room with a live performance that is so intensively televised one of the things that we're, we're drawing on over and over again is our memory of the televised event. So the, the residue, if you will, of the mediatized version of the event is actually in the room with us when we're watching, no matter what we do. And where we were up in the corner in the very cheapest possible seats, we couldn't see the TVs. You had to pay more, I guess, to see the big TVs. Um, so we, we were lacking sort of the television to decode the performance for us as we went and more reliant. But my senior colleague wandered himself around and, and kept an eye on it and said that that was you know, handy if you really wanted to know who to cheer. Um, but it meant that when we were in this arena in Christchurch on this cold night in February, we were um, uncharacteristically, because it is summer there in February, cold, um, we were actually intuiting what side to take and how to perform in a way through our imagination of the televised events. We weren't actually in the room fully, naively, and outside media ourselves. 
Um, and of course, this video that I'm showing you is not exactly what I saw either, because I was way up in the cheap seats, and Sophie at least could zoom in, and when she could, wasn't jostled so much, she could hold her camera steady, and I could see things that I couldn't see as well. So in the live event, there were a lot of things that I couldn't see, or I couldn't understand, or I didn't know quite how to respond to, and I was reliant on the television in various ways, or the camera, to do that work for me. So here... So some of my assumptions about live performance were undermined by that experience. Um, and the fact that it's not the same as seeing it in Madison Square Garden, uh, that 5,000 people in the audience versus 20 is a big difference, that 5,000 people who haven't had this performance experience available to them on a regular basis versus 20,000 who were in the early 90s getting it regularly, you know, it's a very big discrepancy in the experiences there. There were lots of gaps and elisions, lots of weird resonances or residues that we were negotiating with. Um, so it made it seem as though the live event isn't sufficient, which is sort of shattering to those of us who have faith. Um, it's not fulsome enough to capture our attention or to make meaning for us that is significant for our experience in the here and now. What did the Wrestle, what does WrestleMania 23 have to do with me living in Christchurch? I don't know. And uh, the live event in and of itself doesn't answer that question very well. I know I don't like Mr. Kennedy because he doesn't like my team. And because he's mean about Australia and everybody knows that Australia sucks. But, I mean, at least that's, you know, you, you saw, you saw. Um, but I don't know, you know, that the, the live event told me much more than that or could give me much more than that. It was oddly shallow and un unprovocative, lacking in provocation rather than um, unlively in a way. Um, and because I was deprived of that lovely jumbotron, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't make sense of it that way either. So I didn't have the decoder ring in the way that other people did. And so then it became really interesting to, to see those gaps opening up in the experience and to see that I really wasn't, as the expert in wrestling, able to understand or make sense of the performance in the way that I had expected to be able to. Um, and yet here we were. We were the world that was watching wrestling. You know, if wrestling is what the world was watching, you know, then, then we were definitely it. You couldn't get more of the world than New Zealand, I thought. Um, and... And it never answered the question of why for me. So what on earth did it have to do with us? So then I hop a plane the next day, bright and early. And I go to Palmerston North, which is on the North Island, and to the arena there, the civic arena there. And I spent two days totally, totally immersed in Maori culture. Um, this, is, this festival, it's impossible to estimate this, underestimate, overestimate the significance of this festival for Māoridom. The festival was instituted in 1972 as a way of revitalizing or ensuring the revitalization of language and cultural knowledge um, in equal parts. And language, um, when, you, when you listen to some of the broadcasts, the, the broadcasters over and over again say, if there's a problem with deciding who wins, it's the language, the, the tereo, that will make the difference. The language is everything. So. In 1972, um, and here I must thank my friend Therita Papesh, who was one of the performers present in 1972 in this discussion, they decided to pull together the various ways in which kapahaka have been practiced to date into a national festival 
that would be competitive so that it would have value and it would, within that competition, highly value things like musical composition, language, poetic composition, leadership, various and the various forms that they considered at the time essential to Maori culture. And in so doing, they would encourage the learning of these performance practices and the practicing of the practice um, on an ongoing basis. And it has been extraordinarily successful the 35 years that this has been going on. 35 years ago, I don't think they could have imagined how enormously influential they were, their acts were. So to bring Māori together from all over New Zealand to represent their iwi, their tribes, their regions, um, to show how we in the Waikato dance, we in the uh, Tuhoi region dance, to show you what it means to do this and to, through our performance, make, create an avowal, essentially, of the importance of cultural performance, language, and cultural knowledge to our people was actually quite profound and, and remains, I think, for me, quite profound. Um, and those of you who heard me talk earlier about tourist performance, this is the mirror image of that in many ways. Uh, it runs alongside, but it's also quite a different experience. So in the arena, we had 5,000 Maori from all over the country. We had MPs, ministers. Uh, uh, we had them on the stage. We had Dr. Peter, Sh Peter Sharples, who's uh, uh, one of the Maori MPs, on the stage performing with his son, who won the Male Leader Award this year. Um, we had more PhDs in the room than we have in this room, I can guarantee you. Um, we had, um, you know, we had... Um, we had people from every walk of life, every age. We had families, you know, large family units, uh, performing on stage, on various stages, watching each other perform, supporting each other perform. It was a conversation between Māori, by Māori, for Māori, between Māori. And they were talking about, we had the Māori king, I'm sorry, we forgot, I, we had the king. Uh, present as well, he was there. And in fact, in most, in most of the performances, uh, one of the things the groups did was acknowledge the death of the Māori Queen, Teata, um, who died earlier, uh, late last year, and the succession of the king. So there was a moment of mourning for the queen and celebration for the king who was present to watch. So this was a very significant event, uh, very meaningful. What was, what's performed on the stage involves traditional performance but also contemporary ideas. So in the dances, in the songs, they're talking about political issues. They're talking about social issues. Everything from, you know, we need to tell the government clearly that they can't take this, the foreshore and seabed, the right to the foreshore and seabed away from us, as the government is trying to do right now, to we need to tell our young people that drugs are bad, or we need to say we need not to hit our children. So a full range of social issues being communicated from the stage. And of course, lots of political dealing and negotiation going on off stage as well as on. So communication from the stage to the various groups in the audience, but also amongst people at all times. Um, oh, I've jumped ahead a bit. Um, Kapahaka is a very particular, it's a kind of, as I said, a convergence form. It brings together various aspects of Maori performance practice. The most prominent is that from Pofuri which is the ritual of encounter between peoples and very significant uh, within the frame of 
Kapahaka because in the, in the festival, there's a stage like this with an entrance here and an exit here, and the audience scattered here, and the jumbotron was here. And the, the Maori TV broadcasters were funny because they were standing here looking at a little TV screen this way, <laughs> which sort of made the event really absurd from some perspectives. The judges are in a little tiny sequestered booth here and all the rest of us scattered around. Basically, they're instructed to enter as if onto a marae, that is to say, as if onto someone's uh, land, and they have to exit as if leaving the marae. So these two forms of protocol stay solid, even though this is a clearly a proscenium arch, like a theater space. So there's an as-if going on from the start. So the aspect of pofri is each iwi comes in and greets the audience and says, here we are, your guests, coming from wherever we're coming from, and we would like to acknowledge you, our hosts, in this way. And when they leave, they say, we have been, you know, the people of, and we are saying goodbye to you and thank you as they go out. So the ritual aspect of that is preserved, but in a display, a performative manner, not as ritual itself. This is not a marae. This is a stage. This is, you know, you could do Shakespeare on it next week, I suppose, if you wanted to. Um, so there you go. The other part of that is the concert party, which I've talked a bit about earlier today with many of you. The concert party is um, what happens after you've gone through your pofuri when everybody's had their speeches and they've had a bit of food, uh, communal eating, uh, kai, then, then they entertain each other, right? They stand up and say, we'll sing you a song from where we are. And then the, the other people will say, well, thank you for that. Let us share a song from where we are. So there's this sense of reciprocity. So that's built into this as well. Um, the, format of the performance is heavily, heavily prescribed so that each aspect is covered and judged and the time limit is strictly enforced. So 20 minutes, you can lose points if you go under or over. So there are 40 people in each team generally, although it can go up and down depending, but 40 people in each team, that's a lot of people on the stage at once. There are 30 teams competing one after the other. I can't do the math, but that's a lot of people on the stage. Each of, uh, each of those participants probably has a huge number of family in the audience supporting him or her. So, um, you know, that's a, an extraordinarily active communality going on and collectivity and coming together. Um, generally, it's evenly divided between men and women, and the events emphasize male and female. The female performance of poi, which is a woman's performance, although lots of men did the poi this time. They had a lot of display of men doing the poi, and um, men and men do the haka. And again, depending on where they're from, the, the judges were saying, if you don't do it the way your iwi does it, then it's not right, even if it you know, mimics the way someone else does it. So the balance for the judges is between the performance of the traditional practice and innovation, creativity, originality. And that's an interesting negotiation that goes on at each festival. Um, before I show you some, uh, let me just see if I've missed anything here. Yeah, I think I'm basically there. Okay. Um, I will say that um, the judges did not see the TV. They were actually physically prevented from watching the television while it was going on. That was perceived to be 
uh, a negative influence on their, the purity, if you will, of their judgment. Um, but they were also prevented from talking to other people. I mean, they were prevented from doing almost anything but judging. They were very much sequestered during the judging portion of the performance. Um, and that's it. Um, let's show a bit, because it's hard to talk about something that you've not seen. And, I don't, and, and nobody's seen Maori performance, have they? Anybody? You have? No? A little bit. Well, see, we got one person. There's always somebody. Yeah, just start at the beginning. We wanted to show you something specific, but the DVD won't jump the way we want it to. So we'll just show you a bit of anything. Because it's all pretty wonderful. A couple of days ago, performed yesterday for the balloon rooms, and the crowd absolutely loved them. All those people at the Kahanja Whanaupanui will really be hoping this team does well today. Performing fourth for you on stage now with the Te Roku Tuatā. I wanted to show you the winners. These are not the winners. What can I do? And this is a call event. It's actually considered European, so it's not judged. They get to do it if they want, but it's not judged. And they get to wear their pretty feather cloaks to do it. Okay, we can, let's see if we can run it forward a bit. Let's see if we can skip chapters and go. We're going to try and skip ahead since. Um, so here they are entering. Yeah, oh, it's good. Unfortunately, it's a group I don't like her. 
Okay, here's the haka. Actually, we jumped ahead further than me. Yeah. Oh, it's action song. It's actually action song. See, I'm so bad. This is the Maori chant, which again doesn't help. Go one more. They used ukuleles, which was an innovation. Okay, here's the ploy.
and then jump one more. We'll get the haka. Just a sort of sample. I don't want you to sit through the 20 minutes. Here's the haka. And we'll jump to their exit.
That's me up in the corner. <laughs> I was with Tabitha's sister, whom they call Auntie Bossy. She's very bossy. And she was narrating the whole thing for me, which was lovely. Okay, thanks, Tess. I'm sorry you didn't get to see my, my favorite group, but what can I do? Um, comments, observations. What do you see when you look at it this way? Especially, you know, you know even less than I do, which is quite an accomplishment. <laughs> what do you see? Okay. No, that's exactly right. You see, it's like, it's really intimate. You can see how they feel, right? You see the spirit of the individual sort of, it's an amazing, I mean, you can see the flaws, but you can see, it's a really transcendent vision, I think, you know? It's... It's so different to seeing the 40, to see the one or the two at once. And especially when they split the screen, you can see the difference between the two things. The shot that I had lined up for you would have shown you the TV to the side and really exaggerated that for you. But when you see that, where do, what do you want to look at? Do you want to look at, uh, this is the question I have, do you want to see that close up? Or do you want to see the 20, the 30, the 40 all at once? Which, which, where does your eye naturally go? I was actually up in the VIP, up on the VIP sort of level with, you know, with the judges and the sort of ministers and everybody. And, and there was a bit of, you know, they were really hoo-hawing about how the camera was picking out people that weren't necessarily the performers that you wanted to see, that they valued, but actually was making pretty pictures and sort of, sort of removing that level. And at that, yeah, and at that level, my sister does Irish dance. Uh-huh. Um, my sister does Irish dance, which to me is, I mean, part of the attraction of Irish dance is really seeing all of that happening in concert. Yeah. And maybe there is, maybe there are one or two people who are out front, you know, doing um, something beyond the choreographed moves that the whole group is doing. But I do, and, and I think that it's sort of, I'm conflicted, because watching it on the screen, I think I tend to look at the close-ups. Yeah. But one of the things that I like about Irish dance and other dances like that is seeing all of those bodies moving together. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like, I don't know if it's like my lizard brain is betraying me here or what, but I, I keep looking over at the close-up instead of the... Well, that's it. That's, uh, I think that those are the sort of, that's the essential tension, isn't it? That it's really wonderful to see those faces close up. You, you, uh, you can identify with the close up in a way that transcends the performance form itself. I can look and I can see that sort of spirituality being expressed and I can have a piece of that too. So it, it puts me on a level in some odd way with the singer, with the dancer, in a way that the long shots, and indeed watching it live, does not. And when they're all in a mass together on the stage, then I'm someone else watching them, and I stay someone else watching them. So the differentiation between myself in the audience and them on the stage is much more clearly drawn with the live. And of course, we're watching a mediated version already, so we're, we're struggling with imagination about liveness to begin with. But that, I think, is a really critical component of this event, is that are you actually 
because this performance is about difference, right? About differentiation. We are the Waikato people, and this is how we perform. We are the Tuhoi people. This is how we perform. And we are Maori. It's the, the next part of that, but it's not the first thing. So I, I think when the close-up comes, what you see is a generic Maori. You see, any, you know, you see someone singing a Maori song or doing a Maori dance. You don't see uh, the identification with the tribe in the same way. And I see that as a loss, uh, a real loss. So, I mean, so again, all my prejudice is coming right out. But I'm not watching just the screen. I'm actually watching them both together. And I think that's the part that I'm, st I'm struggling with because I, what I'm seeing is, in a sense, too complicated to unpack in, in a linear way. I'm seeing them both and. I'm not seeing one or the other. I'm seeing the difference between me and them, whichever difference is being articulated. I mean, obviously, my difference in the audience is larger than the difference of most other people in the audience who are rooting for their families or saying, that's the other guy that I don't like or whatever. Um, but I'm allowed in the audience, when I see the close-up, to sort of transcend those differences, to come across that and to identify, to see it as universal or to see it at least as this is the Maori spirit in action in a way that I don't quite get communicated if I'm just watching the 40 on the stage. And I have a preference intellectually for the live, the 40 on the stage doing it all at once. Because what you see when you see the 40 on the stage doing it all at once, let's say in the haka, which is uh, you know the crowd pleaser anyhow, in the haka you see the 20 men stomping and doing this all together, right? And I just hit the microphone. I wonder what that did. <laughs> Doing this all together. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> the live experience comes home. <laughs> They're doing this all together. So the emphasis in that performance, and one of the things that first fascinated me about this particular practice, is that you see the 20 men hockeying together, each one of them doing the same gesture as the one next to him, except for the leader who's cheering them on, urging them on, but differently. Somehow the sameness and difference is articulated in a very nuanced way between those 20 men and the 20 women behind who are uh, cheering them on. Because each one is doing his best to be right there with the discipline dance and the unity. They're demonstrating unity. We are together. We are doing this together. And in, in its original context, we are doing this together because we're going to go out into battle and we will kill you, you know? Or the, when the All Blacks do it, we are doing this together because we are unified and we're going to go out and do the next best thing, which is to win the rugby match. It's much the same thing from the Maori perspective. Um, but each individual within that is showing how he can, de is demonstrating how he has the spirit and his individual spirit contributes to the whole. So there is, it, there's unity and individuation both at the same time in the live experience of the performance. We are together, we are doing this together, we are demonstrating unity, and I am demonstrating that my contribution to that uni unity is significant, is important, is necessary as the next man's. Yes? Yes, ma'am. Uh, are you going to get the microphone? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, this, I'm Oprah. <laughs> From the way you describe this event, it seems that in itself there's something very mediated and hybrid about it. 
on the one hand, uh, these are authentic uh, performances. On the other hand, the setup is a little contrived. There's an element of competition that wasn't there originally. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much this confusion about mediation is reflection of that. I think there's a, that's one. The performance practice itself is a has a generic series of genre problems, right? Because on the one hand, it's in a frame like a, a European proscenium theater, which is not. But the frame is decorated and as if it were a marae, and as if they are entering onto marae. So there's you know the, there's that conflation of two things. Then it is a competition, uh, which seems to conflate with the original practices, which were to show that they were the best in other ways, either the best warriors or the best dancers, best singers. There was still competition. But the framing it as sport, again, brings it into a European context halfway. So there's that negotiation going on. And then when you add mediatization on top of that, it, it adds another layer of meanings as well that you may or may not want to unpack when you're there, but as a performance scholar, obviously, I find really fascinating. That is to say, it creates a both and. It creates a visible. Maybe, maybe what you're saying, I could, I could take and say, it creates a both and out of the performance. It is both this, this demonstration of knowledge, respect, ownership of a performance practice, and through that, ownership of the self in a cultural frame. And at the same time, it is a negotiation with what challenges it, what undermines it, what may take it away at the same time. It makes it much more visible. In the olden days, when the TV wasn't on them in quite the same way, they were simply talking to each other. We are here all together in this intimate space, or relatively intimate space. There are no Pakiha, there are no white people, no Europeans. So we don't have to deal with them. Let's talk to each other. It's just a conversation amongst ourselves. And so the framing of that, the negotiation of the performance, was about a conversation ultimately between themselves. And now there's somebody looking over their shoulders at all times. And it's an enormous camera on a crane that's coming in and out to watch that uh, in the same way. And the experience of the performance is hugely different depending on where you are, of course. If you're, you know, like Tarita's youngest kids, if you're standing here watching this way from the edge of the stage, you're seeing one thing. If you're the judge in the, co in the box, you're not seeing this at all. But if you're up here where I spent most of my time, then you're watching both of these things at the same time, which may have been, in a, you know, a good place for me to be. There's not a concession to intelligibility on the stage. You're expected to know your language or not. Either you know the rail, you know the tradition, you know what the wayata, you know the tradition that the particular wayata, the particular song is coming from, and you know how they're innovating it, or you don't. So either you're a sophisticated watcher on Maori terms, or you're not. And that's just tough luck if you're not, right? Unless you have to be a sister telling you play by play what's going on, which is not so different to going to wrestling and relying on the person next to you to tell you who Mr. Kennedy is, you know, um, in, in point of fact. Um, and she did lean over at one point, because the Tuhoi are great, because they come from the very far north, and um, they're very bushed up, and they don't wear dance cloths, uh, uh, loincloths or dance belts in any way. So when they flip their loincloths at you, you see. And, and they start by wiggling their, their asses at the audience. And she leaned over, and she said, when they do that, that's a sign of disrespect. And I, I sort of went, oh, thank you. <laughs> I thought, even I could get that. <laughs> I thought, how stupid did she? <laughs> you know, 
how thick was I looking at that moment? Uh, but I was one of few non-Maori in the audience, so maybe she was right to be suspicious of me. I think when you see them together, and which is different than seeing the split screen here, when you see them together from a distance, what you see is the, the drive towards preserving the tradition, preserving the cultural knowledge on the one hand, and the coming forward into the present on the other. So you see them both at the same time, perhaps. I'm trying to put a positive reading on this as well, because it was, it was really hard to watch this and to know what was going on and to be able to see clearly, if, especially with my eyes. But at the same time, it was really not satisfactory to be watching the screen because I couldn't tell what was going on in the larger sense. So either way, I lost something. And if you think about this performance practice as a way of retrieving something that is in, at least in danger of being lost, or is as much about its own failure as it is about its own success, in that this exists in this artificial way only because the original versions of these things were taken away, were suppressed for so long, so that you see, in a sense, a nostalgia being performed and a lack being performed at the same time, then by adding this, you know, instead of getting plenitude, what you get is further demonstration of lack, perhaps. Um, and it may run counter to the purpose, but on the other hand, 5,000 people see this, but this is going to be broadcast over and over again. It is being used for study, so this is what's being disseminated. What we see, what you're seeing now is being disseminated farther than it could ever go if it just stays on the stage. And again, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? This conversation is very important. Is this conversation as well is a question that opens up. What do they need to say to me that they, you know, that is different or might be di different or might be enhancing what they can say to each other? I don't know. I keep coming back to the role of facial expression mm. in this performance, which seems to be the missing register. It's what differs it from, say, Irish folk dance, where yeah. the, the face is placid and the body is kicking like crazy, is the classic <laughs> yeah. description of, of, of it. Here we've got something where the face is a central axis. And granted, mm -hmm. it's amplified, exaggerated, it's the kind of facial expression you do when you're performing for a larger group. Mm. But I'm wondering if the separation of the full body and the face doesn't in fact achieve something that's part of the, the aesthetic of the performance to begin with, it forcing us to think about mm. the face as a register of expression rather than simply seeing the body as a whole. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it, it, because, it, I mean, you could argue that it fragments the body, and by fragmenting it, it, it deconstructs the Maori identity, you know, because the, 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 one of the significant things about Maori performance is that unlike other forms of Polynesian Pacific Island performance, they sing and dance at the same time rather than having this song over here and the dancer over in another place. It's actually a holistic performance practice. Um, so, I mean, you could argue on the one hand the, the, the way the eyes and the tongue are used and the, the, express, the very codified, ritualized expressiveness, which you can actually see from far away, but it is diminished from a distance, um, that the experience of the performance is enhanced by being able to see that, and it is exciting to see that up close. On the other hand, you could argue that by segmenting out from the waist up, let's say, especially with the Tuhoi, segmenting it out so you only see it from the waist up, sort of like Elvis, um, actually you lose somehow the impact of the whole because it's the eyes are not performing separate from the feet. And I think if the body becomes detachable or fragmentable, 
then we have a problem with Maori identity in a different way. In a sense, we create a different, I think they're all things that, I think it's truly ambivalent. I think that we create a problem by solving it or something, or we solve, we, you know. Well, I, I guess I'm thinking that it would be one thing if you just have the TV, as we just saw. Yeah. But the two together for a society that's now used to multitasking yeah. and looking at multiple sources exactly. of information side by side is holistic. Exactly. It's not fragmented. The, the face by itself is fragmented. The, the fact you see both enables you to have a, a, whole, a more holistic experience. And this so. is what I was thinking. I was thinking that, well, at, at, at this point at least, I can, have, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can have my poor eyes sitting up in the grandstand. And I can have the experience of sitting, you know, down with the kids on the front, you know, lawn at the same time, whereas I couldn't have that otherwise. So there is that benefit. Plus, I have the preservability. And Maori are significant for their ability to capitalize on anything that comes along. Um, some of the best songs in, uh, that have been, or performances that have been given have been adaptations of contemporary songs or contemporary things that are in vogue of the moment on the stage. And, in fact, on the on another stage, off to the back, uh, off in the fairgrounds, were, were the younger people doing hip-hop haka at the same time. So a series of performances were going on there, and there were the over 50-year-olds doing haka, doing their own kapahaka competition at the same time. So we had three stages going simultaneously with different frameworks for discussion, one very contemporary. And so I would agree with you on that score. So I think, and I, because, I guess if, hmm, yes, I agree with you in principle. I, I guess the question is, if, if our eyes go solely to the screen, then we lose that. So it's how we come, how we learn to look at that. Because Maori are taking advantage of whatever media, whatever technology come by to extend their reach, to enhance their communities, to strengthen their performance. Um, And I think my way of looking is not the same as the person sitting next to me, as Auntie Bossy or whoever, because she's looking and she's saying, oh, that's my cousin, or that's my friend's son up there. And so when she sees him in the crowd, she might look and catch the close-up as well. You know, that's a different relationship to that performance regardless. So my outsider status, I think, factors into this considerably as well. Because the fact is, I don't necessarily know how to look regardless of which part I'm looking at. Um, I'm not watching with the same set of rules, with the same code book that the others are in that audience. Yeah? In going back to what I was saying before about sort of the camera focusing in on this mm. conventionally attractive dancers, mm. it seems like that might be, a, that might be a, a, an area where there's a serious problem with just the sort of the editorial decisions being made about how to do the broadcast television mm. component of the performance, that this is something, you know, what if you, if you are looking, you know, you have your, your friend's son down there, your cousin down there, and you are looking for them, you know, how, how does it change the experience if for some reason it's difficult to get the televised close-ups of the people you're interested in and the camera mm. keeps lingering on people who to you seem obviously not as technically proficient or not as important as, as sort of cl close-up figures within the dance. It seems like that's where there can be sort of a real conflict between the two modes of experiencing it. But I think in this case, this is a have your cake and eat it too experience. I think 
that's, I think, what Henry's saying, and I'm saying in a different way with, with more ambivalence because that's my nature, perhaps, um, is that you're, you're, what you're seeing is you're seeing the, you have your choice there. And the, pro the problem may be that we're so conditioned to television that our eye, and to the close-up, that our eyes go that way. The TV is more intimate. What we see on the TV screen is much more intimate. It's much more immediate than the live performance. So there's a huge irony in that experience. The, the group of people on the stage is not transparent to us, what they're doing, in a way that the televised version is. But that we can see both at the same time perhaps allows us entry into that performance, and I think that would be Henry's argument, allows us entry into the performance in a way that we wouldn't otherwise have. And maybe um, that opens the performance to outsiders or non-specialists, non even within the Maori community, in a way that it's not otherwise possible. So I think it's a trade-off. I think that, in a sense, I can reject, and I'm in the audience, I can reject the jumbotron. Um, I'm not allowed in the judge's booth, but I can, I can do my own version of that. I can walk down and stand in the front with the other young people and see, you know, well, I'll see their feet mostly, but, uh, you know, I can see them dancing from a very close perspective that does allow me, what it doesn't allow me to do in the way that the camera does is to linger on the faces and the way that the camera stretches time for me, it slows it down, it pushes the performance forward into my consciousness, it makes it more vivid to me. So I would argue even if I stand down there and ignore it, I'm not going to have the same intimacy that I can with the TV or the televised version. On the other hand, if I, you know, I have the choice to walk down, to walk closely and to see that. And I think in, it, when I have both of those together, the question is coming back to me. What do you know? How do you know to watch this? What are you thinking about? Well, you, you know, what do you value when you're watching this? So that, in a sense, that thrusting it back on the audiences, um, and, you know, who do you want to win? Which the Maori television replicated by having a, a way of texting in, you know, to vote for your favorite. So we had a, for the first time ever, you could vote for your favorite team kind of competition going on, which was no different in many ways to what was going on in the audience anyhow, you know, where when I ended up in the, in the VIP booth on the second day where they were doing the final judging, you know, the, all the judges were, who were not, you know, who had finished their duty were going, you know, that all, everybody in the audience, all they were saying was kill the judges so that it was a good thing they were locked upstairs where they were safe, you know, <laughs> kill the judges. Um, you know, the, that in a sense, and again, the TV was replicating the, that experience that you could text in your favorite team was no different to what was going on out on the ground as well. People were going, who's your favorite, why, and comparing notes. In a sense, the, the mediatized version simplifies what is actually a complex and contradictory performance happening on the stage. On the other hand, the TV amplifies discrepancies and differences and oddities. I mean, I wouldn't have noticed that I really don't like the female leader in that troupe quite so much if she weren't in close-up so much and if I couldn't hear so clearly how off-key she goes. <laughs> but, you know, she's just a little thin on the ground for what we expect of that role. So in some sense, it makes me more focused and more judgmental in a way that I can't be if I'm just watching it from a distance. So. In a sense, in both cases, they, they highlight things that I can't see otherwise. Yes? Uh, well, 
thinking of intimacy mm. um, and the, the holistic experience uh, and the sources, uh, aren't we um, underestimating the audio part when we talk like this, putting mm. so much emphasis on the video and this, the screens yeah. and, and, and the eyes watching and having different perspectives? Because I think uh, for the part of the integration of the whole experience, the sound is, is very much important. And maybe yeah. it's a little bit underestimated if we look at it as we've done just now. And the sound is consistent because it's amplified regardless, um, which is an interesting, you know, the judges note when people aren't managing to play the mics in the way, you know, because they know where the mics are and they should be under them, the judges say, you know, so there's that as well. So there's an amplification that way. I think we miss it because we don't understand the language. So we're, um, we're forced into a visual relationship with the, the performance. But you're right, it is the sound as well. It, it's homogenizing the microphones. And I think maybe it's the homogeneity or the potential for homogeneity that I'm wary of when it comes to the mediatized version. Um, one of the other significant things is that the performance itself is meant to be temporal. It happens here and now, and if you missed it, it's gone. Right? This is going back to my theater days, but you know, one of the reasons I didn't like videotaping performances that I directed is, you know, if you missed it, tough. Because I remember it in my head, in my heart, and that's all that matters. And there's an aspect of that in, the, in this ritual of encounter that's being enacted. There's an element of, you know, if you aren't in the room for the encounter, are you encountering? That is being quest uh, questioned or or drawn into controversy, perhaps, by the repeatability of the performance via its mediatized version. So on the one hand, either you're there when they come out or you're not. And if you're not paying attention, well, you missed it. Um, but you can catch it on Insta. I used to do this at baseball games, you know. I, I got into trouble in New York. It used to, I could do it in L.A., but I couldn't do it in New York. You know, sit and go, yeah, da, 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 what happened? And then watch the instant replay, in a sense that, um, you know, the, the, the demand on the audience that you watch or not watch or that you be aware that you haven't been watching is not the same if you can catch the instant replay. Now, it's great for a performance scholar because I can come back and look at it as many times as I want to and need to, and I can line it up, truthfully or not, next to my own memory of the performance, um, which may or may not work, um, and some things don't work in that case. And there was something... Uh, the other thing is, though, that the live experience and this is true of wrestling as well, is boring, you know? It's essentially, intrinsically, and it, this is where we were talking about the tourist performance. Really, a tourist performance isn't boring because it's over before you know it, and you have to look once and then, you know, or pay another $50. So, you know, you're not, you know, it's not boring because it's put there in a very up-close-to-you way so that, you know, you get it and you go away happy. I got my, perform I got my show, right? This performance is boring. 30 teams of uh, 40 people each over two days in three different heats of 10 each. Okay, I'm just going to make it really clear. Perf you know, one after the other after the other. I'm sitting there when I got there, and I got there on the second day, so I only had to sit through, you know, 20 teams. Um, I didn't sit through the first 10 the day before. Um, you know, you sit there and you think, okay, is now when I get to go out for my nice half watermelon with the ice cream in it? Or you know, can I go get a coffee at least? You, know? you don't know if you're going to miss something if you leave. So you sit there, you sit there. 
it's a long haul. You're, you know, the stadium up where we were, the expensive seats were cold. The cheap seats were in the sun, but up where we were, the wind was rushing, and I was freezing to death. And I finally gave up and went and got a sweater. But, you know, you're, it's, it's tedious, okay? One after the other, after the other, after the other, and then on the Sunday, the six teams who have been picked as finalists, one after the other, after the other, and then we wait, we wait. And we wait for the, the verdicts to be in, the judges to announce their, their um, uh, uh, decisions. So, I mean, and, and so there's this time thing going on, which you don't get when you watch the television, <laughs> you know, because you can go to the bathroom and things like that. Um, and the time that it takes is meaningful. It's the same in wrestling, one after the other, you know. You start with a sort of lower level and you work your way up and finally you get the big match. But they're all extraordinarily repetitious. Um, and that's the point, isn't it? This is the way the world is. And it is, and it is, and it is. You know, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. It's, and that's meaningful, that repetition, that sitting through it is actually meaningful in itself. And the, that there's room to talk to other people and greet your friends and do this, wander off and watch the kids doing the, you know, hip-hop haka, which is so cool, I can't even begin to tell you. Or the oldies doing theirs. And when there were big gaps in the performance, the oldies would get up and do theirs back to the stage to entertain themselves. So, you know, there's all that going on as well. That's not necessarily being captured that... and. I, I'm not sure. I mean, part of me at this age in my life really likes to cut to the chase, you know? And the other part of me says, no, but it's the point is that there are 30 teams. And that that's a, you know, what, 1,200 people or something? I don't know. It's a lot of people. I can't do the math because I'm really bad, but I think it's 1,200 people. It's a lot of people performing. Oh, and that scale is actually significant. So it's not one person after another, it's one group after another. And it's good on me if I can tell the difference and if I can parse apart and if I'm sophisticated. It's like opera, I suppose, if you're going to sit through the ring cycle. If I'm sophisticated enough to sit through the whole damn thing and I know what I'm looking at, then that must, you know, I must get a medal or something for it. And if I'm impatient, well, at least I've come a little way. So again, it's uh, have your cake and eat it too kind of environment in that sense. But I think we underestimate the meaningfulness of the act of sitting and watching in that sense and the differences between the ways people do. And I think it's really valuable to have a choice. But on the other hand, some of the social aspect of that performance experience is about not having a choice, about having to wait while the judges, on the Saturday night, while the judges got themselves together and decided, because all the individual awards were given on the Saturday and then the overall award was given on the Sunday. And so we waited while the judges made up their minds and then we waited while everybody got onto the stage and then we waited while the judges got up and had to perform uh, a bit of a wayata for us, a little action song, and so that we could see, because they were all you know, prominent performers themselves, so we could see their expertise. And of course they're just terrified that they're going to be shown not to know what they're doing. Um, and, and so on. So that waiting, that time passing, and some of it being tedious is actually part of the meaning that's produced and part of the reality, 
when you go looking for reality, it's not really interesting, a lot of it. Um, but the compression and the putting it forward makes it interesting. Now, the value of that from a Maori perspective must be that if I'm a kid watching this and I see that and I want to do it, it might inspire me more than if I realize that I have to sit through, you know, 15 groups before I get my chance on the stage, right? Or if I'm going to go to the, you know, festival for the long weekend, that it's going to be an awful long haul and I'm going to have to, you know, find ways to entertain myself. But that time, that gap, is actually when we talk to each other. It's actually when we, we say, oh, what did you think about that? And how did you find that? And what do you want to, you know, who do you want to win and why? And aren't you silly, Sharon, for liking the Tuhoi because they flip their loincloths and, you know, things like that. Those conversations are actually the social component of it that's happening in the same time and space. And it's being controlled, not by me, but by the, the passage of time within the event. And I think that's a huge, a hugely important aspect of the social that you have to bring yourself to the expectations of the event, not the other way around. The TV brings it to my expectations. I can turn this off and go away and make myself a cup of coffee and come back and I haven't missed anything, ostensibly. So there's that kind of negotiation going on as well. Um, I'm sort of running out of steam here. I think I should look at my notes. <laughs> Because you guys can talk to me at other times. You can find me. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you.